Monday to Friday, from 9am. This is Views and News with Clarence Ford, only on Cape Talk. And joining us now via Zoom from the University of Cambridge, Dr. Chris Smith. Good to see you, and and see you, I will, I hope, in about a week and a bit's time, because we've almost got everything now finalised. I will be in South Africa, and I will be in Cape Town, and hopefully we will be doing an event in Cape Town on the Wednesday week. So hopefully Indeed. a few more details to emerge. We'll tell everyone to come along and, and uh, meet up. It's it's beyond rumour. Yeah, the plans are afoot. And you are going to have a, an opportunity to interact directly with the Naked Scientist right here at the Cape Talk Studios. Um, and, and, you know, my wife asked me as well, um, do you think he Googles? I said, no, he's not like that. That man knows everything. Um, so now you'll be able to see that he's not Googling the answers. Um, uh, hopefully in a couple of weeks' time right here in the studio with us. So somebody has a question. In fact, Andrew has the following question. Why, when I wash my hands, sometimes I have to pee? I think, Andrew, it's probably a couple of things. Number one is the sound of the water. People often say that when they hear running water, because the, the water running out of a tap, out of a fountain, out of a hose pipe, whatever, splashing, sounds like going for a wee, it probably reacts or activates or recruits some of the same nerve circuits that you would activate when you were really having a pee. And it facilitates the same parts of the brain that you would normally need to facilitate to have a wee. That's part of it. The second thing is there may well be an association that when you've been for a wee, you wash your hands. So you've learned to associate hand washing sometimes with going to the loo. And that means that, again, you facilitate the way the, the same parts of the brain that you would activate when you've been in going to the toilet mode. And the way the nervous system works, it's not just one series of switches, this is on, this is off. The, ner- the brain and the, the operation of the nervous system is all about populations of nerve cells there's a hundred billion nerve cells in the brain and and they're all wired to between a thousand and five thousand other nerve cells and when we begin to think about something it's a population of nerve cells that are changing their activity and that activity change is spilling over onto other populations of nerve cells and the extent to which that spillover occurs is dictated by how richly one part of the brain is connected to another so when you move your hand Yes, you're moving muscles in your right arm, but to a lesser extent, you're going to be changing the activity of muscle nerve cells in the left side of your body as well. And this has a range of reasons why you would do that. And it's going to be the same for other experiences. Some people take this to the extreme. There's a condition called synesthesia. It's completely harmless. It's just an interesting psychological manifestation. These people, if you say a certain word to them, and there will be people listening to this program right now who who know they've got this, when they hear a certain word, they will see a colour. When they see a certain shape, they might taste a taste sensation in their mouth. And it's because of crossed over wiring in the nervous system where one group of nerve cells accidentally talks a bit more richly than normal to another group that would normally process a different kind of information. So seeing one thing facilitates the experience of the other. And it's perfectly normal, but it's part and parcel of the way the nervous system works. Mm, Fascinating. Morning. Um, I've always thought daddy long leg spiders are the most poisonous, uh, but that they can't bite. uh, So one's okay. Then I heard it's not true. Would appreciate your opinion. Many thanks, Shirley. Shirley, I think you've 
probably been watching Ricky Gervais in The Office because I think that's where that particular piece of information or nugget came from. You're referring to Harvestman because the, the Harvestman spider is not the same as a daddy longlegs, which is a crane fly. That's just a, an insect. A harvestman is, is an arachnid, it's a spider. Spiders do have a range of extremely potent venoms, and they've evolved those over thousands to millions of years. And the reason they have such a potent cocktail of venoms is because they have a broad repertoire of things they eat. And in order to make sure that they can paralyse their food quickly, immobilise it, and then eat it, they need to make sure their venom works. So spiders resort to a massive case of overkill. But those venoms are going to be quite specific for the kind of prey item that the spider's going for. So spiders that prey on insects will have venoms, which are cocktails of proteins, that tend to work against their target species, but will be much less harmful to other species. Whereas spiders that would prey on a mammal, like a mouse, for example they will probably have venoms that are really, really bad for us because we're also mammals. So it really comes down to what the spiders are trying to consume or what their mode of defence or attack is. The harvestman does not prey on humans and it certainly is therefore not a threat to us. This is a myth. And the other thing that a spider's got to do in order to envenomate you is to get the venom past your skin because these things are proteins and proteins are quite fragile in the grand scheme of things. If you ate them, they wouldn't do you any harm at all. It's getting it into your bloodstream. They would need mouth parts that were capable of piercing skin. And these sorts of spiders just can't do that. So they wouldn't pose a threat to you. Uh, this message came through via WhatsApp. Let's take a listen. Good morning, Dr. Chris and the News and Views team. I know you've had quite a few um, food-related questions the past few weeks, unfortunately, is another one. I would have assumed that having to eat food is because the body needs energy and you basically have energy to do the various tasks during the day. Um, and what would dictate why you need to have a decent breakfast? But why has it evolved that the dinner, the supper meal, is the biggest meal of the day when basically after that you go to sleep and don't necessarily need energy almost doesn't make sense to me dion from Paro. thanks dion hello dion you're quite right and in fact people who are advocates of changing up our, our diet habits argue that this is why the world population is cruising towards obesity oblivion where half the population of the world of the planet are overweight uh, the reason being that we're probably eating the wrong things at the wrong time of day you're quite right when do we need the energy not when we're about to go to bed and snooze with a really low metabolic rate we need the energy front loaded into the day when we're about to be as active as possible we've probably done this through various factors social factors have dictated when we tend to eat the most we tend to be in a rush to get to work in the morning beat the traffic jam get the kids off to school so we pack in a, a breakfast that's convenient it's as fast as possible to consume, but may not be as energy dense as the meals we consume later on in the day. And people say this is the wrong approach. What we should do is to have, and, and the, the old saying goes, breakfast like a king, lunch like a prince and dine like a pauper. The idea being that you front load your day with the calories so that you have energy available then when your metabolism is running at a high and you don't eat so much later in the day when you don't need so much energy. This, some nutritionists and dietitians argue, is consistent with better health, better insulin control and a lower risk of weight gain. 
Um, but I think it's social convention that has really argued that this is why we tend to do the dining habits that we do. Because we've got more time to indulge ourselves in the evening after work when we can relax, sit down and enjoy a meal than the next morning. But really it's going to come down to uh, eating healthily anyway, eating the right amount of things that you need uh, anyway and making sure that you don't have overall too many calories in a day so that you have an excess of energy to store because that's what makes people put on weight. The thing about breakfast, here's a tip one person gave me and, and it's absolutely true and people have done experiments looking at, at this very concept. Protein, if you eat protein, is very energy dense but it takes time to unlock the calories in proteins. So having a breakfast that tends to be more protein dense will keep you feeling fuller and supplied with energy for longer so you're less likely to snack later than if you have a quick fix carbohydrate rich high sugar breakfast like a cereal or something which tends to give a big spike of sugar in your bloodstream a big spike of insulin to control the, the sugar in the bloodstream and then you feel starving hungry because you've turned all the sugar into fat and you're robbed of sugar again so having that uh, sausage for breakfast or the bacon sandwich does actually go a long way towards making you feel fuller for longer and giving you a slow release of energy across the day or, or fish finger sandwich if you wanted to have something that wasn't quite so fatty and salty um somebody asking a question what related to food i guess are taste buds generic i'm indian my husband is greek and my six-year-old will much rather soak his food with olive oil and lemon than eat a curry. I also <laughs> wonder how Asian kids eat sushi from day one. Do you have an answer to that one? Well, again, a lot of social factors at play here. Children watch what their parents and what their peers do, and they copy them. So if you see someone doing something, it's much more natural for you to do it, so you'll tend to copy them. Children are much less concerned about ickiness when they're little and they go into a that looks icky phase when they get a bit older. And so habits that are established very early before children decide things are disgusting tend to then be entrenched in their behaviour and are acceptable to them and they're less likely to then reject them. So there's that social factor to it. The question also concerns whether taste buds have some kind of, of genetic element and the answer is that they do. Our experience of taste is partly what's going on on our tongue with taste buds, gustation, but also it's to do with what's going up our nose and the smells that we're experiencing in our noses, which we infer is down to taste, but is, is in fact smell. We only really taste a small repertoire of, of different things in the food that we put in our mouths, but there are differences, and the way that these taste buds respond to certain chemicals do differ genetically. There are groups of people in the world who are dubbed super tasters. And if they have a particular form of a gene which is at play in their taste buds, some flavours are exaggerated for them. And people from certain cultures will really hate certain flavours, particularly the strong flavours which are in brassica-type vegetables, cabbage, for example, broccoli, Brussels sprouts. Now, not everyone likes those anyway, but certain groups on Earth will say they taste so disgusting, they really cannot go near them. They really don't like them. And I, I had a, a member of staff who worked on The Naked Scientist who was from Ireland. And it's quite well known that there are some genes in people who are of Celtic descent which make some foods taste absolutely disgusting. And if you presented this guy with coriander, which is my favourite all-time 
Herb. Mm. I absolutely love the stuff. He almost threw up every time. He said it tasted absolutely foul, disgusting, every time he put it in his mouth. These these people with these super taster-type genes experience some flavours very differently to other people and will find things that most of us would say are lovely as really distasteful. So yes, there is a genetic element, but there's a really strong social element to this as well, which gets uh, entrenched in children because they watch what their brothers, sisters and their parents eat. And then they think, well, that's OK, I'll eat that then. This message in via WhatsApp. Hi, Dr. Chris Smith, it's Julia. Why are babies so amused by the reflection in the mirror? <laughs> well, babies pay enormous attention to faces anyway. If you show babies pictures and there's a picture of random things and then a face, the babies will stare significantly longer at the face, especially if it's their mum's face, compared to other things. It's programmed into our brains right from the get-go. In fact, I talked to some researchers a few years ago who shone lights through the abdominal walls of pregnant women and presented a face-like appearance using light so that babies relatively early on in development would, if they could, see these lights that were face-shaped and they found significantly enhanced responses in the nervous systems, the developing brains of these developing babies for faces than uh, for other shapes or other presentations. This argues that their brain is already putting itself together to put a hefty premium on face structure. So ba babies love faces already. They don't know that the face isn't theirs until they're a little bit older. And this ability to recognise ourselves in a mirror is called a theory of mind. And people have done experiments where if you stick a sticker on a baby's forehead and show it itself in the mirror, after a certain age, the baby will realise that the sticker is stuck on its face and it reaches up and tries to get it off. But initially, they don't do that. Uh, they don't realise the reflection is theirs. Therefore, it's another face. Therefore, it's incredibly interesting to them because as a visual species where a third of our brain is devoted to decoding what we're looking at, humans put enormous store on faces and face structure. And it's one of the first things that we look at. Some other animals do this as well. Birds, especially members of the crow family, put enormous emphasis on face and eye position and can work out whether they're being watched or not by looking at where the eyes are. We devote enormous amounts of our nervous system to processing what we're looking at, and especially faces. Therefore, the brain prioritises faces and finds them incredibly interesting in the visual world. And I think that's probably why babies fixate on them and also enjoy looking at them. Uh, another voice note in. I'm Dr. Chris. Um, I'm just curious about the elements that are in outer space or that are on other planets. Usually it's, it's ones that we've heard of that exist somewhere on Earth as well. Um, is it possible that there are other elements that haven't been discovered yet or has every single element already been discovered and is on our periodic table, if that makes any sense? What a brilliant question. And the answer is the amazing mind-blowing thing about this and this concept is that the, the chemical palette that we have to play with, the periodic table of elements, is the same everywhere across the universe. When the Big Bang started and spawned the universe, it made hydrogen with a little bit of helium and a whiff, a trace of lithium. Those are elements number one, two and three in the periodic table. 
And we can now see, if we look at the light coming from distant objects across the universe, because as Robert Bunsen, who was the inventor of the Bunsen burner, surprisingly, but also the forefather of the science of spectroscopy, discovered different chemical species or elements, molecules, different things, absorb and emit light of different colours or wavelengths. So if you look at the colour of light coming from something, you can work out what it's made of. And if we look across the universe, we see wherever we look the same chemical palette, the same elements coming up again and again and again. So we're pretty happy that we haven't got specially rewritten rules of physics and chemistry just here on Earth. They apply across the universe and therefore an alien on the other side of the universe has got the same chemical elements to play with, the same building blocks of their world that we have here on Earth. And all the elements that are in us, I said the Big Bang made hydrogen, helium and lithium. The other more complicated things, including the oxygen you're breathing, the carbon that's in your bones, the gold in the ring on your finger, those things have all come from stars which have burned in the universe over their lifetime and fused smaller elements like hydrogen and bigger elements together to make even more complicated elements, building the elements up to, to make things like iron and after iron in the periodic table, they made even bigger elements by stars blowing themselves to pieces, these catastrophic supernovae explosions at the end of a big star's life. They produce the environment that is capable of producing these elements. So far, we've got about 120 elements that we have either discovered or in some cases made artificially. But we've got to a point now where it's getting harder and harder to make elements that are stable. You can ram an element with another element and make a really big element, but it's not stable. The nucleus does not stay together for very long. They last microseconds. So this means that the, these chemicals may exist transiently, but then they fall apart very quickly. The stable ones are the ones that are in our periodic table at the moment. But researchers do wonder, would it be possible if we had the right conditions to put certain com combinations of elements together, drive them together and produce massive nuclei, which would be huge and a whole new element, but would also be stable? Are there so-called islands of stability out there where you could make all kinds of exciting chemicals with all kinds of exciting properties? But we haven't got there yet. We don't, we don't routinely think they exist because otherwise we would be able to see them when we look out there in the universe. So the answer is there may well be things that are transiently out there, but they're going to be very, very rare. And most aliens have got the same palette of chemicals to play with that we have here on Earth. Uh, last question, and we only have a minute for the for the answer, please, Dr. Chris Smith. Please, can you tell me how good or bad statins are for you? Statins inhibit an enzyme called HMG-CoA reductase, which makes cholesterol in your body. So if a person has high levels of cholesterol in their bloodstream, specifically the bad form of cholesterol, LDL, then doctors often advise, if they have a higher cardiac risk, to take a statin to drop their cholesterol. Statins also seem to make the furring up patches of arteries, atherosclerotic plaques, a bit more stable. And so this also reduces the risk of heart attacks and strokes. So in people with a high series of risk factors or a high cardiac risk score, they are advised to take a statin to reduce their risk of having uh, an event like a stroke or a heart attack. And we thank you for your time. As always, the Naked Scientist, Dr. Chris Smith, a regular here on Fridays. And watch out, watch out for details about that opportunity to interact live with him. That's going to happen soon right here at the Cape Talk Studios.